0: Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on August 23rd, 2020, by Pastor Rob Schoff, and it's the fourth message in our sermon series, Gospel and Cultural Fluency. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Two hundred years ago, Thomas Chalmers wrote this The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Thus, it is not enough. Hold out to the world, the mirror of its own imperfections, it is not enough to come forth with a demonstration of how quickly the character of your enjoyments fades, to speak to the conscience of its follies, rather try every legitimate method of finding access to your hearts for the love of him who is greater than the world." Thomas Chalmers. In other words, It isn't super compelling to try to convince people to change simply by describing to them in detail how disappointing their lives are. It's far better to simply show them something better, to expose their hearts to the best thing you can, God. People don't generally like feeling like disappointments. Now, have you ever been disappointed? Of course you have. One time I went to Red Robin and got a Whiskey River barbecue burger And they forgot to put the Whiskey River barbecue sauce on the burger. Now, it's literally the entire point of the burger. You know, it still hurts in my heart to this day. Now, I've hyped up vacations really big in my mind only to have kids get sick on the day of, and Diana and I spend the entire time locked in a hotel room trying to get their fevers down. That's disappointing. But the biggest disappointments, the one that really hurt the most and cut deep, are when relationships, they don't pan out the way that you had envisioned. That could be something like when a friend lets you down or when a friendship explodes or heartbreak over a dating relationship that once seemed so sweet and so promising but has since then gotten sour or maybe getting dumped or maybe having to be the person that does the dumping or maybe a heated family argument where lines are drawn and bitterness take root in a family. You can just feel it breaking apart and you feel like you're the one left to pick up the pieces or maybe it's a marriage crumbling apart around you and you don't have any energy left for it. Relationships can be so frustrating and infuriating, and yet, like a moth to the flame, we are all drawn towards relationships, something so brilliant and yet potentially so destructive. Why is that? Well, the Bible teaches that the desire to be loved and to love and to belong with people, to be someone, somebody, and to have somebody for yourself, that's good. It's always been a part of God's perfect design and plan for humanity for us to have this desire. In the creation story, it talks about this. Genesis two eighteen to 24 says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So when God had created everything good, God notices something that isn't good. Man is alone and needs a suitable helper. By the way, don't read helper as inferior, because the same word is used to describe God in Psalm 33 verse 20. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And in Psalm 70, verse 5, you are my help and my deliverer. And in Psalm 121, verse 1, where does my help come from? My help comes from you, maker of heaven, creator of the earth. So helper is a good thing. Man needed a helper before the fall. Perfect man as an individual still lacked something, a helper. It is not good for man to be alone. Even perfect people need others. It's how God intended it. How much more do imperfect people need others? No suitable helper is found in all of the rest of creation, and so God creates Eve, and now everything that Adam has lacked as an individual, he is found in this other, in Eve. The desire to be loved, to have somebody to belong to, to belong somewhere, to be needed by someone else, this is good. God created this desire in all of us, but desires are easily distorted, even good desires. And this intrinsic, baked-in, hard-coded desire that we have to be loved, to have somebody, to belong somewhere, to need, and to be needed by someone else, it can be distorted or filled in unhealthy ways. Ecclesiastes tells a quick story about this desire distorted. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for the labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. That's Ecclesiastes 4, 7 to 12. So a man had nobody, so all he did was work to obtain wealth until he said, who am I even working for? What's the point of all this wealth? I'm just depriving myself of enjoyment and the conclusion is that two are better than one and three are better than two. In other words, there's no substitute for other people. We need others. People strongly feel this desire to love, to be loved, to belong and to provide belonging. There is no substitute. Now, Facebook has 1.62 billion daily users, 88% of whom say they are there to stay in contact with friends and family, and Instagram has 500 million daily users, and Snapchat is around 200 million daily users, and Twitter is 145 million daily users. Why? So many reasons, but from what I can tell, we want to see what other people are up to. We're drawn to others, even when we can't physically be with others, our friends our family, celebrities, politicians, we want to see what they're up to. Now Tinder is an interesting one because basically it's an online speed dating app. 57 million active Tinder users worldwide. You make a profile, the app shows you other people's profiles, you swipe right to like their profile and swipe left to ignore them. And if you swipe right on someone's profile and they swipe right on your profile, you're matched and you can chat and you can see what happens. Now, there are 1.6 billion swipes every day, and that's about 30 profiles swiped per person per day. Now, Tinder has a bit of a reputation of being a consumeristic hookup app promoting casual sex, but actually informal surveys of its users have found that just over half of them aren't actually interested in hookups at all. They're just looking for friendships uh, that could develop into something more meaningful. The desire to love and be loved, to belong to people, to have somebody, it's good. People feel it. There's no getting around that. As we Christians seek to love and understand our culture and the people who live in our culture, it's very important that we understand that people's desire to love and be loved, to belong to others, and to provide belonging for others is God-given. That's a good desire. We exercise cultural fluency when we seek to understand how this fundamental God-given desire is playing itself out in the lives of the people around us. But that good God-given desire can lead to desires and actions that miss the mark of what God intended for us, both for believers and for non-believers. And our culture has some tendencies that aren't exactly helpful when it comes to how we naturally view relationships. In big ways and in little ways, uh, people look for love in all the wrong places. We desire friendship, the company of others. But maybe we mistake social media presence as authentic friendship. Social media is sort of like relational junk food. It tastes great because it's all sugar. Uh, There's not a lot of nutrition. If someone's annoying you, well, you just mute them for 30 days. Imagine if you could do that with people who annoy you face to face. Social media gives you all the control in the relationship. Now, eating junk food is better than starving, but there are more nutritious options when it comes to authentic Friendship. Now, as a youth pastor, I used to talk a lot about this, um, but post-COVID, I don't think there's any one of us that's feeling a little bit disconnected and that hasn't been relying on social media. Maybe, uh, maybe friendships become toxic because people are using others to fill their needs with no thought given to repaying the favor. In fact, if you take the desire to belong to its furthest extreme, you actually get gangs because no matter what the cost, it's better to belong in a gang than it is to be alone out there in the world, you know, no matter what the cost. We desire intimate relationship, romance, to find a helper, to be a helper. But people discard the security of a covenantal marriage relationship and go straight for sexual intimacy. That could be hooking up with someone, or that could be in a long-term relationship that just refuses to be committed. People can end up trading their personal safety for a distorted version of love and belonging and end up in an abusive relationship. Or maybe maybe people are in a marriage where their desires aren't being met and so they start looking elsewhere to feel relationally or emotionally or sexually completed, leaving their spouse behind. Tim Keller says, In any case, romantic love is an object of enormous power for the human heart and imagination and therefore can excessively dominate our lives. Even people who completely avoid romantic love out of bitterness, or fear are actually being controlled by its power interesting points and so you see people trying to fill their need for others on their own through maybe addiction to work or the pursuit of wealth or substance abuse or the pursuit of distraction or pornography usage and the desire to self-gratify the sexual aspects you know of the desires to be loved One of the biggest reasons pornography, I think, is such a struggle for many is because pornography takes sex and empties it of the need for someone else. But it also empties sex of love and relationship and commitment and intimacy, and it makes sex a consumer commodity, and it objectifies people, and it damages our capacity to love the other for who they actually are. Those are just some of the unhealthy ways in our culture and in our church that I've seen people try to deal with their God-given desires in ways that miss the mark. It always ends up disappointing. In a word, the biggest problem that looms in our culture today when it comes to relationships at all levels and all kinds and romance and love and sex is a consumer mentality. A consumer mentality towards all the different types of relationships that says Get what you can, while you can, as much as you can, for as long as you can, until something better comes along, and then get that. As long as a friendship, or a relationship, or a marriage works for you, good. But if it doesn't, just ditch it and get a new one. Ditch your friends, scrap the relationship, end the marriage, get new friends, a new relationship, a new spouse. Because relationship is all about you, the consumer, and the customers, always right. That's the dark side of the struggle in our culture and in our church. But to make matters even more complicated, we can even wreck the good, healthy things in life, the good gifts that God has given us by making them ultimate things, things we put our hope in, that we expect to provide for us what only God can provide. That's ultimate purpose, ultimate meaning our ultimate identity, or in the case of the conversation today, our, only God can provide us with our ultimate love, and belonging. When we take good things and devote our lives to them like they are a God, we're still trying to meet our God given desires in a way that misses the mark. Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, and if you haven't read it, I highly recommend checking it out. And in this book, Keller says this What is an idol? Is there anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. It's anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. What this means is this: It's actually possible to take good things like Christian values, actions, Christian results and make them into an idol that you love more than you love Christ. It's possible to love the fruit of godliness more than you love God. Here's a case study in what I mean. Growing up, I had a teacher who said something along the lines of, you know, if God ends up being fake and Jesus isn't real and the gospel is fake and all of my morals and all my ethics and all my beliefs and my lifestyle ends up just being an arbitrary choice, I still think I'm coming out on top. I still think it would have been worth it because Christianity has given me a pretty good life. Good friends and a good family and a good marriage and a good life. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen, seventeen and eighteen, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are to be the most pitied. So who is right? The apostle Paul or my teacher? My teacher made it seem like Christianity was more concerned with 10 steps to a good life than knowing Jesus. He unintentionally made the object of the good news gospel to be about coming out on top in this life and having good friends and good family and good marriage and a good life rather than making it about a living relationship with Jesus. My teacher wasn't speaking very good gospel that day, but it's easy enough to do. In an effort to make Christian ethics and morality more palatable to a classroom full of Christians, Christian school teenage punks, uh, he basically told us that our faith is a good legalistic gamble that is likely to pay off. You know, if you're good enough, you'll probably earn a good life. And that's not even close to the grace that we have in the gospel. It's likely true that if you live a good, wise, godly life here in Canada in the year 2020, that you're likely to live a good life with good relationships But that's not gospel truth. Now, for a few of my friends, that little speech was the beginning of their faith exodus. Why do I tell you this story? Well, it's because if we look to our culture and say their values are so broken and the desires are so distorted, they need what I have. And what we articulate to them is just a counterfeit God, an idol, and especially the idol of a good legalistic life that is likely to pay off for you, you definitely aren't sharing the gospel. When I was engaged to be married to Diana, I had a conversation with a friend who isn't a believer and who was living with his girlfriend. And he said, "You're a Christian, right? Does that mean that you're not having sex until you get married?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "I don't get it. I don't get why you wouldn't have sex." And I said something along these lines. I said, "Well, I've been taught that the commitment of marriage is an important aspect of how God designed sex to be good." And he said, "I don't get that. Sex is great but marriage isn't marriage sex you're just denying yourself one of the greatest pleasures in life i think jesus was a pretty good teacher and basically his teachings boiled down to this don't be a jerk and i laughed if i could rehab that conversation now i would do it differently because i don't believe that jesus is just a moral teacher who just taught don't be a jerk i believe the gospel is a lot bigger than us simply trying not to be jerks it's not that I chickened out, it's just that I didn't really know what to say because I didn't really know what I believed. If I'm being honest, my abstinence and our engagement was actually more rooted in legalism than it was in a true understanding of how the gospel changes relationships. I had come face-to-face with our culture's consumer mentality towards people, towards love, towards romance, towards relationship, but I didn't really try to understand where he was coming from what his values were. I didn't, definitely didn't understand what difference the gospel made in my own life when it comes to sex and relationships or what difference it could make for him. A consumer mentality says, I know best. After all, I'm the consumer. What works for me is what is good and what doesn't is bad and I define those boundaries and sex is good and marriage is a headache and I'm a nice guy, so it's all good. But the gospel is the opposite of a consumer mentality. God didn't and doesn't choose us because we are worthy, because we've earned his love through our merits, or because we are good enough to be loved. We weren't savvy, consumeristic investment that paid off for God. The good news of Jesus is this, is that there is no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away and become worthless. But... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's Romans 6, 6-8. God's love for us is not dependent on our performance. It's all about his grace. And because we are loved this way by God, our love for others is not dependent upon their performance towards us. This changes how we view sex and relationships and marriage and friendships and everything. It's not about how good people are at meeting our needs. It's about how, good, how a good God has met all of our deepest needs in Jesus, thanks to his grace. And now we aren't relationship consumers concerned about what we can get. Now we live as God's beloved who belong to Christ and in Christ, and we can give that love sacrificially to others. There's a big difference between saying, I've been told it's good to wait until I'm married to have sex, and sex can't be where I find my meaning and my purpose, where I feel loved and find belonging, because it's just not ever going to be enough. Only God can meet those ultimate needs. That's what Jesus came to teach. That's why he died on the cross, and that's why he rose again from the dead, and that's why I live differently. The first one led my friend to say, that's dumb, Sex is great, marriage sex. I think that second one would have led my friend to say, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Because people can see through legalism from a mile away and just write it off. But the gospel doesn't actually let people off the hook that easily. There's also a big difference between saying, I judge you to be consumeristic in your love, using your girlfriend for low commitment sex. And your God-given desires for love and belonging are good And God wants to provide that for you so badly that Jesus died for you so that you could have a relationship with him. Not because you deserve it, but because God is just that good. And that's the only thing that'll ever give you satisfaction, not leave you disappointed. The first one would leave my friend to say, yeah, Christians are judgmental jerks, which would confirm his pre-existing bias that most Christians aren't following the basic teaching of Jesus, which is don't be jerks. Door closed. But the second one, I think, is truer to the gospel and it leaves the door open for him to meet Jesus. As Christians, our goal isn't to modify our culture's behavior into something that is more palatable to our sensibilities. Our goal is to love the people that God loves the way that God loves them, this is the whole world and we want them to come to know jesus to know his love to understand what he's done for them and have him meet their desires have their desires meet in him idols cannot be dealt with simply by eliminating surface idols like money or sex love treating people like they're consumer good here's the solution do less of that that's not how it works that's not how people are direct appeals like that won't work because the deep idols have to be dealt with at the heart level, and the only way to change at the heart level is through faith in the gospel that restructures our motivations, our self-understanding, our identity, our view of the world. Behavioral compliance to rules without a complete change of heart will be superficial and fleeting. Thomas Chalmers puts it like this, Never does the sinner find within himself so mighty a moral transformation as when under the belief that he is saved by grace, he feels constrained thereby to offer his heart a devoted thing and to deny ungodliness. To do any work in the best manner, we should make use of the fittest tools for it. What he's saying is this, You need the right tool for the job. And the gospel is the only right tool for the job if reshaping our desires is that job. Every other way of desire shaping isn't going to work, so we shouldn't even bother. One worship song that's been stuck in my head puts it like this. I don't want to abuse your grace. God, I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. Church is where we come to understand and practice our gospel fluency, where we come to believe and understand more deeply how it is that the gospel changes everything. Fluency doesn't happen overnight, but it won't happen at all if we don't practice. And that's why the church is so important. These days, people are asking questions they haven't asked their whole lives. They're looking for answers. And when they ask us why we're different... Let's be prepared to give them an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. So when it comes to love and belonging and speaking gospel truth to our culture, we first need to understand the desires that drive us as Christians. What drives us to live differently in the world? What drives us to view love and belonging and romance and sex differently is it rooted in a, in a deep understanding of God's grace and the gospel, or is it rooted in legalism or habit or complacency or something else? Wanting to be loved and to love and to belong and provide belonging, these are good God-given desires. Do we find those desires met in God? Do we really believe and understand how the gospel changes this for us? If you had to articulate how the gospel changes how we love to somebody who doesn't believe have you spent time thinking about how you would say it in your own words Two. we need to understand the desires that drive the people around us god gives us good desires but sometimes people fill those good god-given desires in a way that misses the mark we all do we all fell short um, but sex outside of marriage doesn't send people to hell anymore than abstinence sends people to heaven. So we should probably be more concerned with what really matters, and that is Jesus, getting people to know Jesus. It's our job to introduce people to Jesus. Are there any good things in your life that you've accidentally turned into a false god idol? Are you looking for to find your ultimate meaning through your spouse or your kids or your family or your friends or in your romantic fulfillment or in God? believe in the gospel, return to Jesus, believe in that love that orders all your other loves. I'd like to end this sermon with an excerpt from an anonymous prayer, which is commonly known as the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. It goes like this, O Lord, let me not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that one receives, it is in self-forgetting that one finds, and it is in pardoning that one is pardoned. It is in dying that one is raised to eternal life. Lord, let that be our attitude. Let us seek to know your gospel so clearly in every aspect of our lives and understand the world that we live in and the desires that we all have so that we can really embrace the good news for ourselves. And that it is because of your grace that our ultimate desires to love, to be loved, to belong, and to offer belonging are fulfilled in you. And you're the only thing that will never disappoint us. In Jesus' name. The way that misses the mark in your life, in our church, in our culture? And four, what difference does the gospel make in how you view your relationships? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.